It was March of 1865, and the men under William Tecumseh Sherman had punched their way into North Carolina. In this, the Carolinas campaign, over 60,000 battle-hardened veterans marched, as they had since they left Atlanta in two columns. To confront the blue surge, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston boldly planned to throw some 21,000 men upon one of the isolated Federal wings, and so would be fought on low-lying, marshy ground near a small hamlet in southeastern North Carolina, the largest land battle in the history of the old North State. It would be the last major display of Confederate resistance in the American Civil War. This is the story of that desperate effort. This is the story of the Battle of Bentonville. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. To completely understand North Carolina's largest land battle, we must rewind to give proper perspective. Back in the fall of 1864, the same man who, in 1859, was president of the Louisiana State Seminary of Learning and Military Academy, wrote to Atlanta Mayor James M. Calhoun, You cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will. War is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. And those who brought war into our country deserve all the curses and maledictions a people can pour out. Later in that same letter, Major General William Tecumseh Sherman also noted, But my dear sirs, when peace does come, you may call on me for anything. Then will I share with you the last cracker and watch with you to shield your homes and families against danger from every quarter. The campaign which captured the city that may well have been second in military importance to Richmond began May 7, 1864. The drive from Chattanooga through northwestern Georgia took 128 days, but after 130 miles, Atlanta fell, a victory which helped to ensure the re-election of the 16th president. One blow landed. Sherman wanted to throw another. On November the 16th of that same year, he initiated the march that is most closely associated with his name. His march to the sea was, essentially, a destructive swath some 40 to 60 miles wide. Thirty-six days and 275 miles later, on December the 21st, 1864, his federal force occupied Savannah, Georgia. There, he would use the first month of 1865 to refit and supply. And while in Savannah, there would be discussion about what strategically should follow. Sherman wanted to cross the Savannah River and punish South Carolina. To push that plan, Sherman wrote his friend and commanding officer, Lieutenant General U.S. Grant, 
I do sincerely believe that the whole United States, North and South, would rejoice to have this army turned loose on South Carolina. Yet, Grant countered. He wanted Sherman to, by sea, transfer his force to Virginia and assist the Union Army of the Potomac defeat Robert E. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia at Petersburg. But a mid-December event out west altered Grant's thinking. It was Major General George H. Thomas's victory at Nashville. So, on January the 2nd, 1865, the General-in-Chief gave his blessing for Sherman's preference to plunge into the Palmetto State. So began yet another campaign, the Carolinas Campaign, one fueled by a notion of payback and one that would eventually bring the American Civil War home to the old North State. With some 60,000 men, Sherman moved into South Carolina in early February, two wings, left and right, each wing with two corps, and each corps made up with about 13,000 battle-tested veterans, moving essentially in a great Y. One wing fainted toward Augusta and the other toward Charleston. The route from Savannah and through South Carolina included what many considered impenetrable swamps, but against all odds, Sherman's pioneers corduroyed them. Their efforts, nothing short of incredible. The 425 miles from Savannah to Sherman's objective, Goldsboro, North Carolina, meant crossing nine substantial rivers and scores of tributaries. Despite the wettest winter in 20 years, his men made 10 miles a day for 45 days, and 28 of them in rain. When Confederate Lieutenant General William J. Hardy was informed of Sherman's progress, he stated, When I learned that Sherman's army was marching through the Sakahatchee Swamp, making its own corduroy roads at the rate of a dozen miles a day or more, and bringing its artillery and wagons with it, I made up my mind that there had been no such army in existence since the days of Julius Caesar. Sherman made good his promise to make South Carolina pay for its secession back in December of 1860. In the first three weeks, 12 communities were ransacked. Throughout, he never tried to explain or defend why he allowed his men such a long leash. He was on a mission. He wanted to make Goldsboro, where he planned to rendezvous with Major General John M. Schofield and his 23rd Corps, and a force under Major General Alfred Howe Terry. Schofield had been brought east from the Western Theater and was assigned the task of occupying Wilmington, North Carolina, which he did in late February of 1865, and to assist Terry was fresh from the mid-January victory at Fort Fisher. However, that was literally and figuratively down the road. Sherman first had to clear South Carolina, and his intent to wreck the state was truly manifested when he reached Columbia, February the 17th. The night of the 17th, 18th was one filled with fires which raged out of control. The mix of burning cotton, whiskey, and high wind made for scenes from Dante's Inferno. 
To the chaos, add freed prisoners, looters, freed slaves, and alcohol. Lots of it. By next morning, 458 buildings had been burned, two-thirds of the city in ashes. Of course, South Carolina, and particularly native son Wade Hampton, blamed Sherman, who answered, Though I never ordered it and never wished it, I have never shed any tears over the event, because I believe that it hastened what we all fought for, the end of the war. In the destruction, Confederate forces in South Carolina were flanked and so fell back. That meant on the same night that Columbia burned, so also the so-called cradle of secession, Charleston. The newly appointed Confederate General-in-Chief, Robert E. Lee, responded. Given command of all Confederate forces 19 days earlier, he, on George Washington's birthday, restored Joseph Johnston to command and pushed North Carolina War Governor Zebulon B. Vance to rally North Carolina reserves. On February the 23rd, the day after Wilmington, North Carolina, was occupied by Federal forces, Johnston confessed to an aide. It is too late. Yet, charged with duty, he arrived in Charlotte, North Carolina on the 24th and began to pull things together. It was a daunting task, for when he arrived, he had no staff, no supplies, and in reality, no army. To rectify the lack of men, he first issued a plea for soldiers knocked loose from their units to rejoin them. He ordered any and all to Fayetteville, North Carolina, then Smithfield, which was some 30 miles north of Goldsboro. He ordered a reluctant Major General Daniel Harvey Hill to the Kenston area to assist Braxton Bragg, who hoped to stop an element from Schofield's 23rd Corps, a force under Brigadier General Jacob Cox, who was moving inland from Wilmington toward Goldsboro. The two, Bragg and Cox, fought March 8th through 11th in what is known as the Battle of Wise's Forks, or the Battle of Kinston. That engagement was classic Braxton Bragg. One of his lieutenants, native North Carolinian Major General Robert F. Hoke, succeeded in turning back federal forces, but on the 8th, Bragg sent D.H. Hill's force, which included Hoke, on a fruitless and wasteful mission which squandered early gains. That allowed more Union troops to arrive, and on the 11th, a typical Braggian response. Initial success, followed by withdrawal. Bragg ordered his force north of the Noose River, and Kinston fell. It was then that Johnston ordered Bragg to bring Hoke and Hill to Smithville. Johnston himself moved east with what he had. Meanwhile, Sherman's blue tidal wave rolled northward. It was Brevet Major General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick's Federal Cavalry that on Tuesday, March the 7th, first entered the Old North State. The first North Carolina town occupied Wadesboro. There, legitimate military targets were hit. Grist mills, tanneries, Confederate stables. Then, despite Sherman's orders civilians, allowed by officers who either turned their heads or simply didn't care. Barns, storehouses, and private homes were wrecked at gunpoint. 
Every so often, Major General Joseph Wheeler's Confederate cavalry got a lick in. They did March the 7th at a crossing of the Yadkin P.D. River, just outside of Rockingham in Richmond County. But more Federals were on the way. As to Federal infantry, Sherman's left wing was the first to enter the state, and traveling with the 15th Corps, Sherman himself entered North Carolina under gray sheets of rain March the 8th. The day before, as a part of General Order No. 8, Sherman expressed the hope that every effort will be made to prevent any wanton destruction of property or any unkind treatment of civilians. He believed they were marching into a state that had been reluctant to leave the Union. He added, Deal as moderately and fairly by the North Carolinians as possible and fan the flames of discord between them and their proud cousins of South Carolina. There never was much love between them. In other words, once in North Carolina, he hoped to rein in his bummers. Unlike his policy through Georgia and South Carolina, only one foraging party was to be raised per division, and that party was to be commanded by reliable officers who would be held strictly accountable for the conduct of their men. Only horses and food were to be requisitioned. Private dwellings were off-limits, as were personal valuables. Still, issuing orders one thing— enforcing them another. On Saturday the 11th, Sherman's force, from out of the South and West, like Cornwallis of old, occupied Fayetteville in southeastern North Carolina. In doing so, Sherman told his wing commanders, I wish the town to be dealt with generously. Of course, we will dispose of all public stores and property, but will spare private homes. Try to keep the foragers from insulting families by word or rudeness. But when a committee met Sherman as he entered town, he was livid, angry because he had to clear the town before occupying it. His address to those commissioners was short and to the point. Gentlemen, blacks and cotton caused this war, and I wish them both in hell. Then, pointing, he said, on Wednesday... Those mills will be broken up. Good morning. And then there was the matter of the Confederate or Fayetteville arsenal. Sherman noted, I shall burn it, blow it up with gunpowder, and then with rams knock down its walls. I take it for granted the United States will never again trust North Carolina with an arsenal to appropriate at her pleasure. Fayetteville proved to be very pro-secesh, And a surprise, Sherman wrote, The city of Fayetteville was offensively rebellious. And that meant the town was open for looting. In surrounding areas, without any moderating officers, it was worse. Finally, on Wednesday, March the 15th, Sherman's force moved on by crossing the Cape Fear River. Over 60,000 men, 68 guns, 2,500 supply and ordnance wagons, 600 ambulances, and 4,400 cavalrymen. They did so with a now familiar organization, his right wing consisting of the 15th and 17th Federal Corps. Collectively, the two designated as the Army of Georgia 
and under the command of one-armed, pious Major General Oliver Otis Howard, who was nicknamed Old Prayer Book. Unlucky in the East at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, he was unquestionably loyal to Sherman, respected for his integrity, courage, and attention to duty. In Howard's right wing, the 15th Corps was led by Major General John A. Blackjack Logan, a politician general from Illinois. He was magnetic, combative, simple, direct. Unlike most political generals, he was solid. Howard's 17th Corps was under Major General Frank P. Blair, Jr. He was credited with holding Missouri in the Union when back in 1861 it looked like it might go over. A member of the powerful Blair family, he was a devoted friend to Sherman and for a while attended the University of North Carolina. The left wing, the Army of the Tennessee, was made up of the 14th and 20th Corps and under 35-year-old Major General Henry Slocum. A man of self-control, he was patient, and although possessed with a quick tongue, was a team player. The 14th Corps in Slocum's left wing was commanded by the improbably named Brevet Major General Jefferson C. Davis, a man with a volcanic temper. He, earlier in the war, borrowed a pistol and gunned down a fellow Union officer who had insulted him. He did so in front of numerous witnesses at the Galt House in Louisville. Incredibly, he was never charged. Slocum's 20th Corps was under the command of Brevet Major General Alpheus S. Williams. 44 years old, he was once an editor and publisher. Not known as aggressive, he was most remembered as the officer who passed along Lee's Lost Order 191 to George McClellan just before the Battle of Antietam. Earlier, this corps was the 12th and had fought in the Shenandoah Valley at Antietam, Chancellorsville, and Gettysburg. Sent west and redesignated the 20th, this corps also fought at Lookout Mountain, Missionary Ridge, and Atlanta. Although their battle record was stellar, they were strangers in this army, for their makeup was from the east, and that did not sit well with the rest of Sherman's force, who were westerners. For what would come at Bentonville, we should highlight a few Federal Division commanders. First, in Davis's 14th Corps, 1st Division Commander, 35-year-old Brigadier General William P. Carlin. He had fought at Perryville, Kentucky, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and his force driven from the field at Chickamauga. There he blamed his corps commander, Jefferson Davis, for that, and the two, although serving in the same military unit, were at odds with one another. However, with shared experiences at Missionary Ridge and Atlanta, relations had improved, but the foundation was still shaky. In command of Davis's 2nd Division, Brigadier General James D. Morgan. One of the oldest division commanders at 54, he was a Boston Yankee, the son of a sea captain, and one who had made a fortune in pork packing. A citizen soldier, he served in campaigns against the Mormons and in Mexico. 
and due to the desperate fighting his division would do March the 19th in the coming battle at Bentonville, three brigade commanders, Brigadier General William Vandiver, Brigadier General John G. Mitchell, and Brevet Brigadier General Benjamin D. Fearing. We'll learn of their valor later. And acknowledging what will transpire in the second day of battle on March 21st, we note one division commander in the 15th Corps, which was in Howard's right wing, Vermonter Major General Joseph A. Mower. A former carpenter, he always wanted to be a soldier, and so served as a private in the Mexican War. On the 21st, he would indeed be quite a soldier. And one more introduction in charge of Sherman's 4,400-mounted element. Small, teetotaling, energetic, cocky, overly ambitious, and oversexed Brevet Major General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick. It was due to his poor reconnaissance that led Sherman to believe his march to Goldsboro, North Carolina, would be unopposed. While Sherman's divided wings made their way toward Goldsboro, a beleaguered Joe Johnston was frantically pulling Confederate remnants from everywhere. The once proud Army of Tennessee left Alabama and headed for North Carolina by way of Georgia and South Carolina. Of some 11,000 survivors from the slaughters of Franklin and Nashville, only 4,500 actually made it. To give you an example of how decimated they were, the first Tennessee, 1,250 strong at the war's beginning, was down to 65. The 13th Tennessee began the conflict with 1,200 men and now was reduced to only 50. One division in this army, usually about eight to 10,000 men, was reduced to two brigadier generals and 250 men. For many who answered Johnston's call from out of the South or West, Salisbury, North Carolina, was the gathering place. But because of different railroad gauges and Confederate numbers, Salisbury was a logistical nightmare. For example, one day, 65 train cars tried to get there, while 120 tried to leave. By March 13th, thanks in part to Lee's prodding, Johnston opted to give battle. He chose Smithfield as his staging area, some 30 miles north of Goldsboro. One Confederate who was on the way was old reliable Lieutenant General William J. Hardy, who with his men had backpedaled all the way north from Savannah and Charleston. It was his force that first, in terms of any opposition with any real size, confronted Sherman's left wing at a little place in southeastern North Carolina called Averisboro. There, Hardy blocked the roads and placed his men across a narrow piece of land between the Cape Fear and Black Rivers. Sherman ordered William's 20th Corps and Kilpatrick's cavalry to drive Hardy away. On Wednesday, March 15th, Hardy dusted off a page from War for Independence General Daniel Morgan. He dug in and placed less experienced men up front. At Aversboro, or as it is also called the Battle of Smith's Mill, and with the use of galvanized rebels, 
Union POWs who took an oath to fight for the Confederacy in exchange for their freedom. First and second lines of Confederate resistance fell back to allow a third line of veteran defenders stack Williams' men up. The encounter became a two-day battle and created some 700 Federal and 500 Confederate casualties. The fight, essentially a delaying action, but it delivered some valuable Southern consequences. Though Hardy, around 8 p.m. of Thursday the 16th, ordered his force to fall back, he now knew Sherman's objective was Goldsboro and not the state capital Raleigh. And his stand further separated Sherman's two wings. The right wing, which was to the south, was now about 12 miles away from the left, a full day's march away. After the battle, on a night filled with rain and great gusts of wind, Slocum's left wing pressed forward on one of two parallel roads, the northernmost, which led to Cox's Bridge over the Neuse River, and then on to Goldsboro. It is interesting to note that both commanders, Sherman and Johnston, relied on unreliable maps. Sherman's map was dated 1857, and Johnston's, 1833. Both were inaccurate, and therefore Sherman was unaware that Hardy and his Confederate force could double back after passing through Aversboro and could unite with Confederate troops massing around a little place known locally as Bentonville. So, Sherman's left wing pushed on for Goldsboro, which was a two-day march away, and one that was expected to be quite un eventful. In the early afternoon of Thursday, March 18th, Generals Sherman, Slocum, Davis, and Carlin stopped at a small farmhouse that belonged to the Cox family. The first three, Sherman, Slocum, and Davis, were out in the yard. Brigadier General William Carlin was on the front porch and made efforts to chat with the Cox family. His efforts to make small talk were unsuccessful. Cox children cried constantly, and it was clear that their parents were nervous, upset. When told their property would not be harmed, Mr. Cox kept repeating, That will not save us now. That will, that will not save us now. Carlin immediately picked up bad vibes. He, Sherman, Slocum, and Davis had no idea that trouble was just ahead, but it was there, and reportedly the richest man in the South, Lieutenant General Wade Hampton, had already picked the exact spot to deliver the trouble. Hampton thought the swampy, low-lying terrain perfect for a smaller force to give battle to a numerically superior foe. The greatest Confederate concern, the retreat route was only one bridge, and it spanned a tributary of the Noose, a little stream called Mill Creek. No matter, on ground picked by Hampton, Joe Johnston and his so-called Army of the South hoped to block the isolated 14th and 20th Corps on the upper road to Goldsboro, make them deploy, lure the enemy to attack, and then smash them with a strong counterattack. On the 19th, in the extreme southeastern corner of North Carolina's Johnston County, he succeeded in getting what he wanted. He blocked the 14th Corps and forced them to deploy. 
about four that morning, an incident that should have served notice of impending danger. A major Holmes led a party of federal foragers to their picket line. There, one sentry offered a warning. Be careful. The Johnny's cavalry is only a short distance up in front. One of the bummers shouted, To hell with the Johnnies. We want something to eat and we'll have it or bust. And that prompted the picket to say, I guess you'll bust, for you won't get anything but lead to eat. To that, the bummer fired back, All right, we'll see. Indeed, they would. Later, and after a few hours of skirmishing with unusually stubborn Confederate cavalry, Holmes foragers reported, the rebels don't drive worth a damn. Holmes galloped back to warn Brigadier General Carlin, whose division that morning around 7 a.m. led the Federal advance. Sure enough, three miles into their march, Wade Hampton skirmishers enticed them to attack, and thus began the drama that would lead to the last great Confederate infantry charge of the war. When the skirmishing began, back at 14th Corps headquarters, General Sherman, Slocum, and Davis sat on their horses and perked up their ears. Davis reminded Sherman of Carlin's premonition at the Cox farmhouse. Perhaps Carlin had stumbled into a sizable portion of the enemy. But Sherman, after listening attentively to the firing for a moment or two, said, No, Jeff, there's nothing there but George DeBrell's Confederate cavalry. Brush them out of the way. Good morning. I'll meet you tomorrow morning at Cox's Bridge. Sherman, indeed, believed Johnston had retreated northwest toward Raleigh, and so rode off to join Howard's right-wing column. Meanwhile, up the road, after probing and skirmishing on about a mile front from 9 to around 11 in the morning, an aggressive and that's what Sherman wanted in his brigadiers. Brigadier General Carlin chose to do what Sherman advocated. With Hoke's Confederate division in his front, he ordered men from Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan, two brigades, one under Brevet Brigadier General George B. Buell and the other under Brevet Brigadier General Harrison C. Hobart, to punch Hoke's men out of the way. Both brigades, however, went in unaware that hidden by a tree line, directly in their front and extending beyond each flank, were men in butternut and gray. Men in lines that outstretched the Federal attack formations and were primed for counterattack. Ahead was Lieutenant General A.P. Stewart's remnant of the Army of Tennessee and other Confederate troops, a force that totaled over 20,000 men. The weather that Sunday, the 19th of March, was warm, cloudless. The Confederate line from its left to right resembled a hand sickle. Unaware of the numbers in front of them, the Federal Brigade under Buell went in first. Marching to the left of the Goldsboro Road, their left flank was exposed, and Confederate fire raked it, driving them back with great loss. Now Hobart's men went in. The Wisconsin native, Hobart, was beloved, quick-witted, well-educated, good company. He was a leader of the Democratic Party in his native state, and for his efforts was acknowledged as the father of the Homestead Act, which so many states had adopted.
Captured at Chickamauga, he was sent to Libby Prison in Richmond and, with others, escaped about a year and a month earlier. He returned to duty and was active in the Atlanta campaign. Now, at 1 p.m., he and his men streamed forward. They, too, were punished and fell back. With both brigades driven back and from information taken from captured Confederates, one of which was a galvanized rebel from Syracuse, who warned that Johnston was on the field and had a large Confederate force, Wing Commander Slocum made a fateful decision. He reversed his thinking. Sending Brigadier General James D. Morgan's 2nd Division forward as reinforcements, he, around 2.30, called for a courier to go find Sherman. He told the writer, don't spare horse flesh. The message, it is reported by prisoners that Johnston and Hardy are here. I think a portion of the right wing should be brought forward at once. By now, elements of the left wing's 20th Corps were up, and Brigadier General James S. Robinson's Federal Brigade moved forward to make contact with the enemy. This moment, with others on the right side of the Goldsboro Road, concerned Braxton Bragg, who immediately bombarded Johnston with requests for reinforcements. Johnston finally relented and sent him Major General Lafayette McClaw's division much to his eventual regret. The redeployment delayed Johnston's grand attack and therefore allowed for more Union units to arrive on the field. It also reduced Confederate numbers in the planned assault. Six years later, Johnston, in his diary, still burned in reflection when he wrote to fellow Confederate Major General Hoke. He wrote, I believe that General Bragg's nervousness when you first were attacked at Bentonville was very injurious. By producing urgent applications for help, which not only made delay, but put a large division out of position. It was a great weakness on my part not to send him to Raleigh on the 18th. Indeed, McClaw's division was Hardy's largest. Though Carlin's aggressive attack suffered considerable loss, there were federal silver linings. It did upset Johnston's timetable, forced a reactive deployment, and to some degree revealed Confederate numbers. Nevertheless, Johnston continued to make final touches for his counterstrike. It was to be in echelon, from Confederate right to left, and involving, if executed as he planned, some 13,500 men. His order to advance came at 2.45 p.m., ebbing out from the tree line and raising the rebel yell, they, a sea of butternut and gray, surged forward. For the first 300 yards, they marched at the quick step. Then came the order to charge. The last grand charge of the Confederate Army of Tennessee and of the war. The southern wave crashed and enveloped Carlin's Federal Division. Men in blue north of the Goldsboro Road were swept away. Yet, though there was Confederate success, it was not as Johnston had hoped. Bragg's force, which made up the handle of the sickle, did not follow the blade. Having already disrupted the Confederate timetable, Bragg contributed negatively yet again waiting for McClaw's reinforcements, and either misunderstanding 
or disobeying orders, Bragg was late in ordering hoax men forward to join the assault. No matter, Carlin's Federal Division was smashed and driven back about a mile. But without Confederate pressure from Bragg's front, Brigadier General James D. Morgan's Union troops south of the road were able to throw up defensive fortifications. In their forefront, three Ohio regiments from Brigadier General John D. Mitchell's brigade, and they were supported by two Illinois regiments. To add to this federal presence, more of Morgan's division came up. Behind and to their right was William Vandiver's brigade, and behind them, Benjamin Faring's brigade. In four distinct lines, their defense had depth. Unable to entrench because digging brought water, they felled trees and saplings. With them, they hastily packed their fortifications with mud, which in the low-lying muck where they wallowed was found in plenty. Fearing's men turned to face the Confederate attack to the north. Mitchell and Vandivers faced east toward Bragg. Earlier, we mentioned the Confederate attack had not gone as Johnston hoped. Instead of the entire line moving forward in echelon, Bragg's delay made Hoke and his men observers rather than attackers. And even with the addition of McClaw's division, Bragg did nothing with them. Finally, around 4 p.m., Hoke's force was ordered forward, but not on the federal flank, but a frontal one, and executed in piecemeal fashion. And that attack was done so late that the Federals in front had had time to meet it. Though their left did bend, they stubbornly in the muck and mud held. Again, out in front, Federals from Illinois and Ohio under 26-year-old Brigadier General John D. Mitchell. He and his men had fought desperately at Horseshoe Ridge at Chickamauga when the Union Army of the Cumberland fought for its life. They fought at Kennesaw Mountain when Johnston's Confederates bloodied Sherman's nose. And here they were again in what was called on the battlefield as the bullpen, assailed from the north and with Bragg's men finally joining the Confederate attack from the east as well. Of Morgan's Federal Division, five of his regiments faced north, three east. It was Hoke's North Carolinians who slammed into Mitchell's men. His right and center held, but on the left there were simply too many men in gray, and from too many directions, Mitchell's left buckled and was turned by men under D.H. Hill, who by now had crossed the Goldsboro Road, joined the strike, and crashed in on Mitchell's left. In short, Mitchell's men were attacked from three sides, and the attacks came so suddenly and from so many different directions that men from Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, and New York literally jumped from one side of their fortifications to the other to confront Confederate attackers depending on which direction they came. Their stand, heroic. Some six Confederate attacks repulsed. On Vandiver's embattled front, the peril was similar. Confederates who turned Mitchell's line now tried to turn Vandiver's brigade. The 47-year-old former Iowa politician and lawyer had his men in two lines about 120 yards apart. They, too, wallowed in swampy ground. They, too, like Mitchell's men, fought for sheer survival. 
Confronted on multiple fronts, they, too, jumped from one side of their hastily built fortifications to the other. By about 4.15 in the afternoon, they had repulsed two Confederate attacks and inflicted damage. The 14th Michigan had captured 40 officers, some 200 men, and the flag of the 40th North Carolina. Now came time for Union counterattack. 27-year-old Fearing and his brigade decided to deliver rather than receive. Fearing was a veteran. He had been at Shiloh, at Chickamauga, and Atlanta. Separated from the rest of their comrades, Mitchell and Vandiver, by some 250 yards, Fearing's men stormed forward, but as they did, Confederates hit their center and right. It was too much. Forced to fall back, Fearing was hit. His thumb was torn off. He lost a forefinger in the lower part of his right hand. But though painfully wounded, he reorganized his men and helped to organize a counterattack before he turned command over to another. That counterattack struck the exposed left flank of the Confederates north of the Goldsboro Road. Even though that attack was repulsed, Fearing succeeded in buying time, time to construct more Union defensive preparations to the west and rear, and bought time for Slocum to push more men of the 20th Corps forward. One of the first on the scene from that corps was the brigade of Brevet Brigadier General William Cogswell. Also 27 years old, he was an educated man, a graduate of Phillips Andover, Dartmouth, and the Harvard Law School. He received orders around 3 or 4 p.m. to move forward. Flushed with the electricity of battle, he and his men actually had every right to be on the point of exhaustion, for they had marched all night of the 17th, 18th. On the 19th, they were roused at 5 a.m. and rushed to the sound of firing and arrived around 3 p.m. Now they were pushed forward to help Morgan. The route was just south but parallel to the Goldsboro Road, and off-road they tore through thick bushes and waded through waist-deep water. Fortunately for them, they found D.H. Hill's Confederates, who were focused on their attempt to hit Morgan's rear. Cogswell's unit hit Hill's unsuspecting men on their vulnerable flank and forced the Confederates north of the road, back toward their starting position. By now, it was around 5 p.m., and the battle had been, as all battles seemed to be in the American Civil War, one of several distinct fights. At the start of the day, there had been skirmishing. Then Carlin's Federal Division had attacked and was wrecked by Johnston's grand charge. Though it came late, Bragg finally joined it. D.H. Hill and Hoke struck Morgan's Federals on the south side of the road, in front and on their left. Benjamin Fearing struck the left of Hill's Confederates and then was repulsed by Confederate counterstrikes. Like so many battles, surge and retreat. Like so many battles, command confusion. Men fighting in pockets, their universe only what was immediately in front and around them. No question, Confederate momentum created by their afternoon attack had evaporated. But around 5 p.m., Confederate Lieutenant General Hardy hoped to rekindle their fire. Though late in the day, he ordered several attacks. 
One was made by McClaws, who had earlier in the day been marched from one end of the Confederate battle line to the other, then back again to make this assault. There was another by Brigadier General William B. Tulliver, who had been on the extreme Confederate right. And near sundown, another led by Major General William B. Old Gritz Bate, all unsuccessful. By then, too many Federals were on the field. It was around 8.30, organized fighting ended, but that did not stop skirmishing and firefights. Just after midnight, a resigned Joe Johnston ordered his army back in positions from whence they began that Sunday morning. He strengthened his lines, threw up breastworks, and ordered Braxton Bragg to Smithfield to help with the evacuation of the wounded and to oversee if and when withdrawal was necessary. He also, quite prematurely for what was to come, wired Robert E. Lee of Confederate victory. The enemy driven back a mile, three guns captured. What he didn't realize was that some galvanized rebels slipped away during the night and made it back into Union lines. They gave damning intelligence. Also entering Union lines under the cover of darkness were Confederates, who simply had had enough. That night, again, like so many battles before, pitiful cries from those who were wounded, men looking for their units, the dead buried, and constant skirmishing. There is record of one site that had been a Confederate field hospital during the day, but had been abandoned when Johnston pulled everyone back. Some of the wounded were men in Union blue. One who was left behind was a Pennsylvanian who had been hit that day and captured. A Confederate surgeon amputated the lower part of one of his legs just above the ankle. Abandoned, he crawled that night all the way back into Union lines. Maybe Joe Johnston knew it, but on the 19th of March, 1865, the Confederate high tide at Bentonville had crested. If he knew what was taking place several miles away to the south, he would have known it for sure. Slocum's courier found Sherman at O.O. Howard's headquarters. It was about nightfall. All day, men of the right wing had heard the sound of guns to the north but had no idea of its severity. Slocum's message delivered, one of Sherman's aides recalled the almost comical scene. He wrote, The commander-in-chief would have made a good subject for punch or vanity fair. Every officer present was nearly bursting with laughter at his ludicrous appearance. He had been lying down in General Howard's tent and hearing the inquiry for him and being, of course, anxious to hear the news of the fight, rushed out to the campfire without stopping to put on his clothes. He stood in a bed of ashes up to his ankles, chewing impatiently the stump of a cigar, with his hands clasped behind him and with nothing on but a red flannel undershirt and a pair of drawers. Sometime after midnight, he read a new message from Slocum, which read, I have positive information that General Johnston is here in person with a heavy force. I feel confident of holding my position, but I deem it of the greatest importance that the right wing come up during the night to my assistance. 
from prisoners, I learned that the corps and commands of Hardy, Stewart, S.D. Lee, Cheatham, Hill, and Hoke are here. A disappointed Sherman had hoped Johnston would simply fall back. He was so close to Goldsboro where supplies, rest, and reinforcements awaited. He didn't want a full fight here, yet he had to respond. Some of Howard's wing began to move that night. One division, Major General William B. Hazens, retraced its route and headed for the battlefield. They had marched eight miles on the 19th and now 14 more that night. At 6.30 the next morning, they reached Slocum in his headquarters. Some moved forward to Cox's Bridge so they might be in position to get beyond and behind Johnston's army. Though he was concerned, Sherman did get one piece of good news that day. Schofield was in Kinston and would be waiting for him in Goldsboro. On Monday, March the 20th, Slocum, the man who had fought all day on the 19th, had three objectives. Consolidate his position, reinvigorate his left wing, and thirdly, strike his Confederate foe to determine its strength and position. Meanwhile, to the south, at 5 a.m. that same Monday morning, Major General Howard's entire right wing was on the move. For most, his route took them to Cox's Bridge. It was guarded by one small Confederate brigade under Colonel John N. Whitford, who was ordered to defend the bridge to the last and or destroy the bridge at all hazards. For about an hour, his men resisted, but eventually pressed. Whitford's force fired the bridge. Meanwhile, a Union division led by Brevet Major General Charles Wood was a mile south and pushing west from Cox's crossroads. One brigade, Colonel Robert F. Catterson's brigade, made good use of advanced technology. Indeed, that brigade may have possessed more raw firepower than any brigade in Sherman's army. Five regiments under Catterson had Spencer repeating rifles, and a portion of a sixth wielded the 16-shot Henry Voluntarily purchased by soldiers at the then hefty cost of $35, the Spencer could fire 21 rounds per minute. With that kind of firepower, Catterson's Federals drove off Confederate cavalry and forced back infantry on the Goldsboro Road, then raced west to assist Slocum back at Bentonville. Around 10 to 10.15 on the morning of the 20th, on a day of steady to pouring rain, Johnston learned that Howard was bearing down on his exposed left. Incredibly, rather than order a withdrawal over his one retreat avenue, the road over the Mill Creek Bridge, Johnston opted to remain on the battlefield. And even as Howard moved west to attempt a hookup with Slocum, Sherman continued to funnel non-essential wagons toward his objective, Goldsboro. On a day of shifting positions, constant rain and skirmishing, Union Brigadier General James D. Morgan, one who had in many respects saved Slocum's left wing the day before, detected something within the Confederate lines. It seemed to him that Hoke was shifting, and he kept hearing chopping. Indeed, Confederates were bringing down trees to build breastworks from which they could contest Howard's approach. 
As several of his federal units arrived on the field from out of the east, they tried to bend the Confederate left even farther back, farther to the north. To be sure, on this rainy Monday, the day was spent shifting pieces, as if on a great chessboard. Slocum took advantage of Johnston's falling back by reoccupying much of the original positions he held the morning of the 19th. And to the east, down the Goldsboro Road, Howard's men began to deploy. Slocum and Howard's deployments of their combined 55,000 on the field meant Johnston had to respond. He extended his left to the north while he drew back his right. Thus, the Confederate line now looked like a great U, a large thimble. Flanks refused. Johnston positioned his Confederate force of some 20,000 to protect his lone avenue of retreat at one bridge over Mill Creek. That bridge was essential. Crucial. Critical. Dawn of Tuesday, the 21st, came, and skirmishing immediately began at Cole's Farm as the Federals pushed to unite their left and right wings. Skirmishers probed, and eventually the Cole farmhouse and buildings were burned to the ground by Confederates to keep them from being used by Federal scouts and sharpshooters. Assorted reports convinced Johnston that all he could hope for this Tuesday was to repulse Sherman's attacks, then safely withdraw his army across by now a flood-swollen Mill Creek. At 7.20 a.m., Johnston sent a message to Lee in Virginia saying as much. And then, around 10 o'clock, with the two Federal wings still trying to link up, Howard sent two of his divisions swinging toward the Confederate left. Full battle was rejoined. By noon, men in blue and butternut and gray battled in a heavy rain that lasted all day. The forces were engaged. Sherman still hoped to avoid an expanding general battle. He just hoped Johnston would retreat, thus allowing him to slide right and head for Goldsboro and resupply. But around 4 p.m., word came that Joseph A. Mower's division had driven around the Confederate left and actually was in position to threaten the bridge over Mill Creek, Johnston's sole precious route for retreat. Mower, one of Sherman's favorites, had earlier in the day personally conducted a reconnaissance and found the Confederate left soft and with Howard's okay pushed his division forward. His movement began at 11 that morning. They crossed a tributary of Mill Creek and, though with great difficulty, made their way through and over marshy terrain. Once clear, they deployed and attacked. Howard ordered Frank Blair's 17th Union Corps to support Mower's advance and thus pin the Confederates, deny them the opportunity to slide left. In the face of Mower's attacks, Confederate resistance on the left melted. So much so that the 64th Illinois, equipped with Henry rifles, captured John Benton's house, which was Johnston's headquarters, and almost the Confederate commanding general himself. He and his staff escaped on foot. Mower's initiative had Johnston and his army on the ropes. 
Indeed, his men found themselves within musket range of Mill Creek Bridge, that crucial artery for Confederate retreat north to Smithfield. The Confederate situation was desperate, and Southern Generals Hardy, Hampton, and Joseph Wheeler responded by making desperate, vicious counterattacks. In one of those frenzied attacks, the Confederates made use of the 8th Texas Cavalry, Terry's Texas Rangers. The unit, formed by Benjamin F. Terry, had been ill-starred from the start. Terry, who formed the unit, was killed in combat in December of 1861, and their original complement of 1,170 men was down to 80 by the time of the fight at Bentonville. Terry was the first of 12 commanders lost during the war, and the 12th, Lieutenant Colonel Gustavus Cook, was wounded two days earlier. To his men, his wounding was no great surprise, for he had been hit so many times before, his men referred to him as their Yankee lead mine. One who rode with the 8th Texas that day had a well-known father. The new, if you will, recruit was 16-year-old Willie Hardy. An instant hit with the men, the young Hardy had begged his lieutenant general father to release him from his role on his father's staff and let him get into the fight. Reluctantly, the elder Hardy granted his wish. In the fighting, a federal bullet plowed through his chest. The irony, the officer who commanded the Union right wing which attacked Major General O.O. Howard, had tutored the young Hardy when both he and his father had been at West Point. Sent back to Smithville, then Raleigh, the wounded young man eventually wound up in Hillsboro, where he was nursed by his stepmother and sisters. On March the 24th at Airmont, the home of his first cousin, the young man passed and was buried. Mower's successful strike was so sudden and unexpected that his men literally outran their support and therefore was susceptible to being cut off. And that's exactly what Johnston attempted. He and Hardy threw everything at them, even if it meant stripping the Confederate right. Roughly half of Johnston's right had indeed been rushed to defend the Mill Creek Bridge. And that meant the Confederate commander had no reserves. Desperate Confederate counterattacks stalled Mower's men. He needed reinforcements, and Howard prepared to send them. But right about this time, Sherman, who learned what was transpiring, fretted over Mower's men and ordered them to fall back and connect with his own corps. To the great disappointment of Mower and Howard, who believed a concentrated attack would have broken through, the threat to the Confederate left and rear was over. Later, Sherman admitted, I think I made a mistake there and should rapidly have followed Mower's lead with the whole of the right wing, which would have brought on a general battle, and it could not have resulted otherwise than successfully for us by reason of our vastly superior numbers. Sherman allowed Johnston to leave the battlefield, and so ended the Battle of Bentonville, the largest land battle ever fought in North Carolina. In military parlance, it was a tactical draw. Sherman allowed Johnston and his ragtag army a chance to fight another day. 
With Goldsboro's occupation late that same day by Schofield's Union force, Sherman was content to disengage and move on to his planned rendezvous. At 10 p.m. the evening of the 21st, Johnston's force began to retreat from the battlefield by way of that little bridge over Mill Creek. To match Confederate moods, it rained all that night, and so hard that the downpour muffled the sound of retreating wagons, ambulances, and guns. The last of Johnston's army crossed about sunrise. Federals did offer some pursuit, but Sherman was content to just let them go. He had reason to be happy on Wednesday morning, the 22nd. Johnston was gone. A landing at Cox's Bridge had been secured. A pontoon bridge was in place across the noose, and Schofield was in Goldsboro. It was indeed a very good start of the day for William Tecumseh Sherman. That very morning, General Slocum, Howard, Blair, Logan, Williams, Davis, and Sherman all noted a bright star in the morning sky. It was actually the planet Venus, but no matter the generals decided to think it a star of peace. And after Sherman left, the remaining generals decided it should be called Sherman's Star. For his counterpart, Joe Johnson and his survivors streamed back to Smithville, then west to Raleigh, Hillsboro, then Greensboro. He had tried to use what dwindling resources he had available to isolate and destroy one wing of Sherman's army. Even as he tried, he realized the futility of his actions. He regretted every single casualty suffered and what he now believed was a losing cause. Soon thereafter, he reported to Lee as to his ability to stop the Union tide. Sherman's course cannot be hindered by the small force I have. I can do nothing more than annoy him. He believed the end was near, and indeed it was. The Butcher's Bill for Confederate Forces at Bentonville, 239 killed, 1,694 wounded, around 1,500 captured or missing, a total of some 3,440 casualties. For the wounded left behind, like all battlefields, anything that offered shelter was used as a hospital, and that included the John Harper House, where for over three months the Harper family, 62-year-old John, his 45-year-old wife Amy, and six of their nine kids cared for over 50 wounded Confederates who had been left behind. Thirty-one recovered. Twenty-three died. Twenty were buried around the house. For Sherman, at the Battle of Bentonville, his forces suffered 194 killed, 1,112 wounded, and 221 missing for a total of some 1,527 casualties. On Thursday morning, March 23rd, he rode into federally occupied Goldsboro. The next day, his left and right wings arrived, and in doing so, completed their march of 425 miles from Savannah. Rations arrived from Kinston. So did new clothing, shoes, and for the first time in three months, the men were paid. And yet all this topped 
by the arrival of mail. Carolina's campaign was over. It had been wildly successful. From the Confederate perspective, wildly destructive. In retrospect and in truth, although Bentonville highlighted Sherman's occasional battlefield carelessness, it also showed his single-mindedness, his sense of purpose. He wanted to reach Goldsboro. He wanted to complete the Carolinas campaign. He did both. Of course, there would be, again, like all battles, consequences and fallout from the fight at Bentonville. 20th Corps Commander Alpheus Williams, considered too cautious, was removed from command and replaced by plucky Major General Joseph A. Mower. Unlucky William Carlin, whose men stumbled into determined Confederate resistance back on the 19th, was pressured to resign for doing what Sherman wanted his officers to do, be aggressive. For the bloody Union surprise that was Bentonville, the North needed a scapegoat, and Carlin was it. The North also wanted a hero and Major General James D. Morgan justifiably filled that bill. His division's gutty defense saved Slocum's wing on the first day of battle. In Goldsboro, Sherman held one grand review, rested his troops, and then to reassess traveled to City Point, Virginia, where on Saturday, March the 25th, he met with Grant, Lincoln, and Rear Admiral David Dixon Porter. Fifteen days later, Lee surrendered, and Sherman, on April the 10th, the day after Appomattox, put his men on the road for Smithfield. Johnston's force was scattered and in flight, and Sherman dogged him. Raleigh fell Thursday, April the 13th, and late in the day of Easter Sunday, the 16th, an advanced element of Judson Kilpatrick's cavalry under Smith D. Atkins arrived in Chapel Hill the home of the University of North Carolina, the little college town, the last of the war to be occupied by Sherman. Since he first entered the state, events raced, but by the end of April, it would all end near a spot on the North Carolina Railroad, Durham's Station, in the humble, rustic home of James and Nancy Bennett. North Carolina's greatest land battle, Bentonville, was a last monument to Confederate determination and futility. In North Carolina, the ever-present Southern diarist Mary Chestnut was not far away. She saw and heard Confederate soldiers on the retreat. After she learned of Confederate reversal at Bentonville, she wrote, The camp songs of these men were a heartbreak, so sad, yet so stirring. They would have warmed the heart of an Icelander. So I sat down as women have before when they hung up their harps by strange streams, and I wept. Indeed, in the lowlands and murky waters around Bentonville, the battle and result served as a metaphor for the Confederacy. Desperate hopes drowned in dark swamp water. Next time we gather, we'll turn the clock back to days when young men prepared for futures, 
when they would wear stars on their shoulders and collars. Revolving around two cadets in particular, George Brenton McClellan and Thomas Jonathan Jackson, I hope you'll be with us when we tell the story of those two and others that made up 37 of 59 graduates who served in the American Civil War. Next time, the story of the fateful West Point class of 1846. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. <laughs>